Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. As usual, you can find our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, you pick it, we're there. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to thepanjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. You have this intuition, I think, in combat mm. that when you know something is not right, it's off. It's sure. a sixth sense. I, I don't know how to explain it. And I, I know everybody who's ever been in combat has experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, from the night we came out of the desert and we did that airdrop in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And got resupplied and I think somewhere within that night that moon cycle was when we were observing some targets and we were picking up radio chatter that people had seen us kind of come out of the desert like the Mongolian horde right and that was the night when we were all watching different targets we had all of our target lists and all of our packets so uh, there were dozens of targets of interest that we were watching. So each ODA or each t- semi-half team guys are, you know, each vehicle is watching a series of compounds. That's the same night that like groups of four vehicles in probably 20 different locations simultaneously started moving in different directions. So it's like a kaleidoscope all these cars and trucks started moving at the exact same time. It was like 10 minutes after the hour and they moved and all the radio silence in Southern Afghanistan went out. Nobody was talking, Hmm. not even to mama, their boyfriend, nobody. And it went dead for about 15 minutes and all those vehicles stopped moving and the chatter picked back up. Hmm. we're looking at each other like that's weird that's just plain weird and um so anyway the next morning you know the sun came up and we started moving towards our blocking positions and as soon as we came out of this little 
this little bottleneck on the Rig Desert that opened up to the southern horn of the Panjway where we were going to set up our blocking positions. Probably a mile away, we saw a Hilux truck with a massive Taliban flag and about mm. six or eight guys in the back of it. And they just literally went straight up the little road where we were putting in one of our blocking positions. Hmm. And that was like the first legit enemy that we saw. And they weren't hiding it. They were advertising it. I mean, this was like yeah, right. probably a six by nine Taliban, big white with black letters, you know, mm-hmm. Taliban flag on the back of this truck. And we started chatting to each other that, hey, something's not... Like, this is just getting weirder and weirder by the day. And then we ended up occupying our blocking positions. And then I think that night the Canadians were supposed to go in and they delayed a day. And then that was when they were told they're not going to do the reconnaissance and they're going in when the sun came up. Well, the Canadians had deployed the task force along Highway 1, the main road into Kandahar, and down that main road coming into Panjway, into the bazaar, and by the time the sun came up and the first two vehicles crossed over the bridge, uh, they took like three spig rounds. And, um, and it's got a pretty decent, you know, 2,000 meter range, um, especially on the 90s. And or like, that's not like accurate recoilless rifles is not something we're used to, you know, running into. And then over the course of the day when they pressed the attack, um, you know, I think there's even some of the videos that are from the, the American battalion that was in the Northwest and there was American infantry battalion in the Northwest. And then they were supposed to be part of the blocking force to keep the Taliban from getting out of Moosh, uh, the upper portion of Panjway. And then, um, when the Canadians came in to try to cross the Argandab river and they occupied Mushan, the, the hill on Mushan, or excuse me, Masum Gar, when they tried to get over to where the white schoolhouse was, that was where the defense in depth was. And yeah, um, I mean, we watched it go on, you know, all day long, just mm-hmm. like watching one of those old World War II patent movies where stuff is just going off in the distance. Well, when the sun goes down, it picked up again. And I mean, literally there was fire coming from there was as much automatic weapon fire at one point from discus and RPKs from the enemy than there was from the Canadians. Like they were giving it as good as they were getting it. Yeah. And, you know, aircraft that would do low level, you know, passes or whatever. I mean, it was nothing to see like six or eight weapon systems. They obviously were well armed, well supplied. Um, and we just well prepared, were thinking like this they is, knew it was coming. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, without doing a reconnaissance, the exact s- sequence of events that happened with the Canadians, I think they had, I think they lost like six vehicles destroyed or damaged. One of their command vehicles that was pulling an ammo trailer 
got hit with an RPG. A couple of guys got killed. They ran into defense in depth where they would abandon, you know, the Canadians would try to flank and move forward. And as soon as they did, the insurgents were in fallback positions. I mean, we went to those positions. They had sector stakes beaten into the ground, uh, you know, ammo prepoed, you know, along irrigation ditches so at night it was easy to follow the terrain to get to the next Mm -hmm. position i mean it was well thought through and um what really changed the tide of our participation was that night one of the canadian infantry companies was in the argandab river they had been in you know the in the the battle earlier that day and it pulled back to the river that night i believe and they were burning some trash fires or something and there was a bad cast call and i don't know canadians blame the pilot the pilot blames the canadians but they did a 18 gun run on the canadians and they took about 30 um killed or wounded in that event as well. And I'll never forget walking over to Jared Hill, who was our company commander. And I said, we just lost the initiative. And he said, I know I've been talking to, I've been talking to uh, desert Eagle six on the Iridium. We're probably going to end up getting pushed into this thing. And pretty much as soon as he said that, I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to have to eat a crap sandwich, why don't you make the sandwich? Sure. Sure. So terms. that's when I, you know, under a flashlight, I hollered over to Bill and we busted out a map and we were like, Hey, where would we go? If we were going to support, if we were going to bring some firepower down on these dudes and support them, where would we do it? How do we get there? What do we need? How long do we need to hold it? Um, you know, what permissions do we, because they're all at the time, the, all the battle space and the aircraft, everything belonged to the Canadians. So right. even when we called in troops in contact, the priority of effort was going to the Canadians. So we had to go through. That's why we had Derek, the Canadian L&O, with us, you know, to, to liaise to try to get the, uh, the enablers mm. and the air power. And, uh, I mean, the Canadians had it, and they weren't afraid to throw it when we needed it. They just... Mm. You know, it's just that it wasn't part of our original plan. If we could have come up with like a contingency plan, um, but it, we still ended up being able to um, get the approval to go in uh, to try to support them because they weren't going to be able to get off of Masum Gar or across the Argonaut River without somebody reducing all of those uh, enemy positions across the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you I mean, guys... not to mention the ones at the south that they weren't expecting. Yeah. You know, everybody in the, <laughs> yeah, the ones in the right vicinity in front of us, we didn't know were there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, hundreds and hundreds, maybe not, probably thousands of fighters that they didn't didn't plan for, didn't have a contingency for, didn't have any intelligence on. They just. um. So, I mean, how does that, how does that lead to the choice of spare one gar as your objective? If I remember correctly, I think Bill and I went to Dave and to Bruce, the other two team leaders and their team sergeants and said, Hey, look, it, if we're going to go in and help these guys, 
that's what I think we ought to do. You know, we need to occupy the high ground, get some key terrain, secure it, and then put some air power to give these guys some relief. Um, and then we kind of figured that was going to be the end of what we were going to be doing. And what ended up happening was after we made that first assault on Spear One Gar, when we got ambushed and uh, had to exfil, was when we were able to paint that more clear picture of that's the QRF force. And then by the time we got up on the hill, we found out um, it was a training camp and a C2 node as well yeah. as a large QRF force because the whole hill had been an old PDRA, a People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. It was a Russian Burdum position. Um, so that's why the the berm and everything was there and the uh, the water tower was there built into the hill. But so um, uh, we were able to. Uh, so I've got a question for you because I've always wondered this. Um, if I'm standing on Spermangar and looking south, where is you guys' blocking position in relation? Because there's that big spiny mountain range to left that the big reggae and all that area is beneath. Yep. Reggae uh, was the yeah. village where we had one of the blocking positions. Okay. So you guys come around those mountains and down into the district to set up the. Yeah. We came. Uh, what we did was if you're. You know, if you're looking at the upper Horn of Panjway, the Argandob River going northeast to southwest, and then mm -hmm. the Horn of Panjway below it, then you got that open desert, and then the Rigay Mountain Range right mm -hmm. there to the southwest, or excuse me, to mm -hmm. the southeast. Mm -hmm. We came south, we came out of the Rig desert, desert south up to Rigay, and Rigay is where we saw that vehicle with the Taliban flag. Okay. And then we put a blocking position north of Rigay Village, south of Rigay Village, and then a blocking position two days later, Bruce Scullion came with ODA-336, which had the ANA weapons company. So when they showed up, they brought 682-millimeter mortars, you know, our uh, 120s, all the heavy gun trucks, um, all the ammo trailers, everything else. And they occupied the southernmost blocking position at the south of the Rigay mountain range over there okay. on the east. Okay. So All right. as soon as we got to the blocking positions, the first thing we ended up doing was having to try to clear Rigay village. Yeah. And it was a absolute nightmare. Um, so, so when you guys first started getting hit it was in Rigay. No, no, no. Rigay was where we first started seeing the, we busted up a Raven. Once we got into our block, like we got into our blocking position. So the first ODA, which was Dave's ODA, I think he went the farthest north blocking position. Mine was right closest to Rigay Village. And then Bruce Scullion's guys came in a day after because once we were in position after crossing the desert, Bruce's guys cut straight through Kandahar. Like if you left Kandahar Airfield and yeah. went straight west, you could get to Panjway through the, yeah. the desert. And that's how Bruce got there so fast. But we would throw the Raven up and see like these large group of fighters pulling weapons and stuff out of buildings and loading them in vehicles. And then all these Toyotas were and trucks and stuff and tractors were 
flying out of Rigay Village in between our blocking positions and heading towards uh, Spearwangar. Okay. So when you guys uh, started to make the assault on Spearwangar, you would have like driven because well at least the way it was when we were there to go immediately north or even northwest you were starting to hit grape fields and villages within 200 meters 300 meters so you couldn't get a vehicle through there so when you guys drove did you drive west and then button hooked to the north and hit it from like the the south side of the hill basically if you came if, if you could imagine coming from Rigay village and going across the open plain yeah. There was a natural, where Spearwangar was, there was a natural choke point and opening in the villages at the southernmost yep. portion uh, where the marijuana fields kind of stopped. Yeah. And some yep. of the grape fields and Ishpishkana, those grape drying huts, they started, but there was an area that was about 150, 200 yards wide. Yep. that just sort of funneled you naturally into Spearwangar. And that's yeah. where we assaulted from the first time. Okay. That's what I, that's what I always thought. I just wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth because <laughs> that's the only way I could ever envision vehicles you know, making their way to Spearwangar from, from the reg, you know, from reggae. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad we didn't try from any of the other areas because. Um, yeah, yeah have been impossible i mean when, yeah when we found out like if you would try to if you would have tried to leave spearwangar to the northeast and go up through those villages like getting to the panjaway like and then cutting due north to get to the panjaway bazaar i mean there were pockets of fighters in there that were like 40 or 50 deep those are the guys that hit us when right. we were in the you know when we were in the choke point um but the thing was it even though it's, it probably didn't seem like the most, it, it was the only viable way to get to Spearwangar and use the three essential elements of assault, which is speed, surprise, and violence of action. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were trying to do was once we got in our formations, once we were ready to move out, we were hauling ass across that desert, and then we went from our wedges into our files. We, you know, pushed into the choke point, and I made it right to the first berm uh, before we started getting hit. And then it was one of those, um, like you remember all those stories that you, you listen to Vietnam veterans where if you survive an ambush, the first, you know, few minutes of a right. Or the first 30 seconds, if you survive the first 30 seconds, you probably got a chance of living. But sure. I mean, it's it was that surreal moment where, at, I mean, at some point the rounds were coming through the windshield, you know, traveling, because we had hit from three sides. Yeah. Right. Um, and probably we gave it as good as we got it. Because um, this was day one, right? This is the initial assault yeah. on Sparrowgar. I, it, it was actually probably I, – I don't remember the exact timeline. I don't remember if the Canadians went in on the first or the second, but we went in like a day. Oh, I'm okay. pretty sure we went in on the third because I had a a disagreement with Jared over what time we were going to begin the assault because he wanted to do it 
at about like four o'clock in the evening. Well, by the time we would have been decisively engaged, the A&A were not night fighting trained. They had no night mm-hmm. vision capabilities and mm-hmm. they just bunker into a division, a position and get back to back with another A&A and they just shoot at anything that they hear. And we didn't need a bunch of collateral damage, uh, So, so I, I argued are... strenuously to wait until first light the next morning to go in. And that ended up being um, a better way of doing it because we ended up fighting 11 days straight. So you guys are pushing up to that open area and you start getting fucked up. And, uh, you know, like, I mean... I, the, the thing that blows me away uh, is how did you walk away without taking casualties? <laughs> you know, well, we first. did take some casualties. That we lost um, a couple of vehicles. Uh, Zach took some RPG shrapnel in his arm. Yeah, um, I he told us about that. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I I'll be very honest with you. I some people like it when I talk about my faith. Some people don't. I always. Um, to cut through all the nonsense i always prayed strenuously uh before i went out on any operation um there's kind of a a point that you come to especially when you get wounded where you your mortality becomes very real to you it becomes very flush you know that this might be the last few moments of your your life on earth. And um, I don't know what it was about that, but we just felt we were so aggressive. And it just seems like we made all the right moves, tactical adjustments at the right time. So when we first went into the bottleneck, my ODA and the company commander's vehicle that's were, that was following my vehicles from my ODA and the ANA that were on our flanks, we got into um, the fishbowl that we call it, and then only one or two of uh, three sixes vehicles, I believe, were able to get in, and then. Dave Hodges guys were going to act as the QRF. And when we got in, uh, all I remember doing for 45 minutes straight is we did the best we could to identify positions and every single person fired everything we had on every single vehicle. I mean, I don't know how, you know, somebody like, um, Sean Mishra, who was an ETT, an Oregon ETT. Um, he had, at, at some point, we were getting hit with armor-piercing rounds because the 240 gunner on one of the other trucks, his weapon quit working, and he couldn't figure out why, and it went to load, clear, reduce, malfunction. There was... A through and through in the ammo can with a full box of ammo and a through and through in the receiver. Fuck. And we got the word that, hey, they're hitting us with, you know, AP rounds. And um, they were hitting us with like volley, they they would volley fire 
RPGs, and then you like the vehicles will get hit with an airburst RPG um, within maybe 10 meters of the vehicle. And, um, you know, just all kinds of pops everywhere. And you could just, or that's not good, but, you know, ding, ding, ding. You could hear the truck getting <laughs> right. hit getting uh, smoked. pretty regularly. I mean, it was, and then, of course, there were times, like I said, when rounds are coming through the windshield, you know, and through the door behind where you're sitting. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I I don't know how no. I don't know how we didn't all get killed. I don't. Mm. And like I said, it was easy to detect that they knew what they were doing. Like you would get hit with a bunch of RPGs, five or six at one time, volley fire, mm. boom. And then the machine gunner, when they would pick up and move, you'd have like one dude that would hit you with like a 200 round belt of ammo and just rake all the vehicles to try to suppress our fire. And then they would maneuver and try to get close to you. And um, Was that surprising to you? I mean, based on your previous oh yeah. time in the area? Oh, yeah. Mm. Um. One of the things that we did, um, I think we had a lot of the right weapon systems because at some point when we started to get the close air support, because they were using, like, we immediately, the guys, I think, more so than me, because I'm trying to fire my weapon and C2 and talk right. to the company commander and talk to the JTAC. Um, guys were able to identify positions where they had the most number of, where the most fire was coming from. So because we did so much internal training together with all of our weapon systems and everything, we would concentrate our fire for our 50s and 240s. I mean, we ran, you know, just like you pick a certain weapon system for a certain type of fight. Well, when we did mobility stuff um, or we were going to be operating in the open desert or fighting in villages, like we always ran AP ammo. Every, every 240 round on my truck, all four or 5,000 rounds was all AP ammo because you got to shoot through those mud walls. If you try hitting them with ball ammo, it just bounces off. Same thing yeah. with the Carl Gustav rounds. I and mean, if you hit him with an HE round, it just blows the big chunk out of it. Or, yeah. you know, it, if you hit it with a flechette round, it's not going to, you know, flechette rounds we save for the grape fields. Because mm -hmm. when you fire those Carl Goose rounds into the flechette fields, if they're moving or they're looking up those, you know, over the, the little mounds, you know, right. you can usually hit two or three of them at a time. Um, the 50 cals would work, you know, we used a lot of the slap rounds, the tungsten mm -hmm. plastic coated rounds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> those, those dudes bring the truth. I mean, that round is serious and it, it would cut through those grape huts like butter. So mm -hmm. when you've got enemy that are maneuvering or massing their fires, if you can identify where those areas are and reduce them with your weapon systems, then right. you begin to immediately degrade the enemy's capability. And yeah. I think it was not synchronized or planned like a football play, but I think ultimately because the guys were so well-trained, they knew right. what to do and how to do it. And we had the right, we had done the right preparation for that fight. And I mean, 
you know, when we ran out of AT4 rounds, when we ran out of Carl Gustav rounds, we had like six AT4 rounds or 10 AT4 rounds and maybe 15 Laws rockets on each truck. And, you know, we, everybody had an M7. I mean, when they broke that stuff out of Warstock, that's like, you know, everybody had an M79 grenade launcher with like 30 or 40 rounds, you know, with them. Right. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have known this when I was in the recruiter's office when I was all excited as a kid about jumping out of airplanes and right. Yeah, well, <laughs> things things get different when they shoot back at you. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it changes changes the recipe a little bit. Yeah. You know? at, at one point, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I reached up because my, my I had the two satcom radios or the satcom radio and the FM radio in my gun truck, and you know I would talk and I had my my little homemade like tack board, my computer and everything that I had basically stayed up all night long and drilled and built into the truck. And I'm looking at all this stuff. And at one point I pick up my handset and I'm like talking into it and I'm looking at it. And then I realize that the cord has been severed. Like it's just, <laughs> just dangling. you know, dangling. I'm like, well, fuck, you know, what do you do? <laughs> I guess, you know, just get back on the floor. I can't talk to him with my end better than that's, you know, that's not going to work. A lot of it was, I think, individual bravery, just complete. I'll never forget that. All this stuff's going on and it's sensory override. And I don't care what anybody says. You're angry. You're scared. You're trying to do everything right. Bill Brown comes walking up to the truck like Sam Elliott. Everybody here okay? I'm like, scared me because he came, you know, we didn't have any doors on the truck. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, we're almost black on ammo, Captain. We're going to have to reconsolidate. that. <laughs> I'm like, why don't you get behind the truck so you don't get shot? And he goes, I ain't going to die here. And I was like, well, you got big balls, man. But And yeah. right after that was when Zach got hit with a airburst RPG, went off beside the vehicle, and he's got a little piece of shrapnel on his arm. But that dude's tougher than he's a man child so he probably would have (laughs) dug it out with a pocket knife if we let him and stuck around but um, i mean i mean he talked we talked to him a couple episodes back but you know he showed back up next day to help throw down with you guys again you know so i think that's a, a testament to the american fighting man when you get the good ones out there you know we saw this too in our experience 2012 when you get the good ones out there and when the shit it gets really hairy, you know they can bring the hate, you know they can they can bring the pain, uh, and it's something to see. It really is for sure. Oh yeah, well I know Tom and was even talking about his guys. It's impressive to see. Yeah, when is. they do that, you're like, those my peeps, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember Tom talking about his uh, some of his sought alpha guys mm-hmm. and some of the things that they were doing. You know, just carrying you know double fisting 50 or uh, 50 cal ammo cans and moving them back and forth i mean these are these are intel guys and they're just killing it oh just yeah like i got some, I, I've still hate. got some video uh from them um we i dropped a thousand pounder into um hafiz majid's mosque that we were it was a it was a machine gun position it was probably only 200 meters in front of the Sade vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and I know for a fact that those are the guys that covered me when um, when Greg Stuby and Sean's truck hit the IED mm-hmm. when it went off right after I had cleared the schoolhouse. Right. Um, and I thought it was a company commander when I tried to get him on the radio and I couldn't get him. And um, all I could imagine in my mind was that the dude's burning to death. And I hollered over to Tom and I said, because they were the only truck at that time on the northeast corner of Spearwangar to where we had cleared to. And they were just getting raked with PKM and AK fire. And I said, hey, I got to go. And it was probably, I don't know, 80, 90 yards with some undulating terrain. And I'm not exactly a runner. I'm more of a walker. But uh, (laughs) that particular day, I was hoofing it as fast as my fat little legs would get me. And uh, if it wasn't for them, I would have been shot to pieces. Hmm. Uh, Because, uh, like I said, those marijuana fields, I mean, you could intermittently, you could see them running through them at like 25 or 30 yards. Right. And at some point, you could tell they were even getting confused at where where they were. Right. um, that's when we had the A and A just basically start raking, you know, methodically raking all the marijuana fields right it's there at the policy. edge of the the hill or yeah, the the burn. That's close too, man. Uh, day one. So, what kind of prompts the decision to tactically withdraw from the initial assault? And then, I mean, obviously the fact, other than the fact you're out of ammo, but I mean, did you get kind of get an inkling before you guys started to go out, run out of ammo, that you might have to? try this again at a different point Uh, honestly all i remember is when bill came to me and said that we were amber i Mm -hmm. ran back to the i ran down the call i had repositioned the trucks inside of an l shape sure to cover or kind of a wedge um a left wedge left wedge and um pulled the a and a vehicles in behind them and um, ran to the company commander's vehicle and said, hey, we're almost black on ammo. We need to break contact. And um, it was weird even saying the words. But um, I mean, that's not what you expect to do, you know, to take your Well, we had been there in the kill zone for about 45 minutes. Yeah. And... We, we had given it as much as we could get it. The problem then became, in my opinion, not just a tactical problem, but a leadership problem. Because besides whatever ammo we have in our go bags and on our bodies, all of our combat multipliers on our crew served vehicles and all of our enablers were gone, shot, mortars, everything. Right. Like we launched everything from inside that kill zone to try to buy us some breathing space, some survival space. And then by doing that, if we probably could have pushed forward, but then based upon the surprise and enormity of the enemy size and the fire that we were taking. And I was, I was the assault commander. So it was my call anyway and I was like, we couldn't hold it because we don't have anything right. to yeah. hold it with. Yeah. And Jared's like, you know, hey, it's your call. 
and I just messaged Bruce. And by this point, Dave had already flanked around about a quarter of a mile and gotten in behind a bunch of insurgents that were firing on us. Mm-hmm. So when they got their vehicles in behind them, they started running down these irrigation canals. And when they did, they just whopped them to pieces. And right. that kind of broke the that broke their initiative. Uh-huh. Right. And we had an opportunity. We had two vehicles um, that were destroyed. The A left two vehicles after we broke contact. And then we probably had about a half dozen casualties uh-huh. on the A side. And um, like Zach had that piece of sh- shrapnel on his shoulder. And I just felt like one of the biggest problems that we had, we did during that first contact get some casts, some Apaches. Um, but we need like this now becomes a deliberate offensive operation. I need right. to fall back to the desert, plan this properly. We need to rearm, refuel, come up with a better significant plan. If we're going to do a deliberate assault on a known fortified enemy position against a numerically superior force. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You don't half-ass that. The Russians did shit like that all the time and they got, they couldn't get resupplied and their forces would be overrun. And right. I just didn't want that to be us. So, um, no, definitely not. I asked Bill at one point, what do you think? And with all the professional precision he could muster, he said, let's get the fuck out of here. I said, <laughs> all right. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that, that, that to me is, is one of the most mind blowing parts of the story. Obviously the, the Indiana Jones travel across the desert and then, but this idea that, you know, two plus ODAs with a, you know, a company of, uh, Afghan yeah. army Loaded found themselves completely outgunned. Like this, that is, I mean, to maybe to some people it's not as weird, but to a, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, we were never outgunned. Mm-hmm. I don't ever remember being outgunned. So yeah. that to me just like is mind blowing. Yeah. This this concept yeah. of That's being outgunned in a fight, as fuck too, man. It, yeah. <laughs> makes, well, I think a lot of that is also spunting. what was the shock to the siege of Sodaf and the ISAF forces because it's like. You don't want to believe it. They don't have that right. many people in there. And you're right. like, oh, yes, they do. They're right here <laughs> shooting at me. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Hear that? <laughs> yeah, you're like. Uh... Yeah, I'm sure it was hard to believe. Like they, yeah. like you said, they went into this operation thinking there weren't even 1,500 Taliban in the country. Mm-hmm. There were probably 1,500 Taliban shooting at you that day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like and we started asking immediately for... Um, reinforcements mm-hmm. oh yeah absolutely uh, we got turned out <laughs> at one point later on in the battle we were using so much cast to try to hold the hill that right. the sea desoto commander said if you don't start sending us some bda i'm cutting you off right of course yeah and that ended up being the same guy that um had Voss's packet pulled because he had a dick measuring contest or problem with our battalion commander. So they turned down all of the high ranking awards, the, the DSCs and, um, 
I, I had put in, I, when I got home, I spent a couple of days in the hospital when I got medevaced with Dave Smith and, um, that's what the genesis of what started the book was I was writing the silver stars for, mm-hmm. and the DSCs for all the guys on the team. And, um, just trying to recall all those stories, but yeah, they, right. they, they, uh, I don't know. Yeah, Politics that's... does what it does. I mean, we don't do yeah. this, uh, you know, obviously nobody does for, but as a, as a commander, when you know that your guys earned something, mm-hmm. you deserve something, then I'm going to fight for you to get it. Even if it pisses somebody off. And. Well, and that fight they... continued. I mean, you just got his award upgraded back to a, a DSC. What? Like last year, yeah. the year before. Yeah. Yep. I actually, they had me, um, that's probably one of the, I have fought to get Jude's packet. It is at Army Awards and Decorations. It has received all of the updated sworn statements to include a signed recommendation from the SOC sent commander, a three-star general who has read the packet and believes that it deserves to be a Medal of Honor. Hmm. And Army Awards and Decorations will not properly review it because it they say that some part of it does not fit a protocol. What they don't okay. want people to do is to ask why the C. DeSoto Commander, because it, it'll be embarrassing. Yeah, sure. A full colonel had an issue with one of his battalion commanders thought that he was trying to make a bunch of heroes out of his guys, so they killed all the high-ranking awards, and they didn't want to believe. I mean, the Sea Desoto Commander didn't show up until, like, November, December to even see what we were doing anyway. Mm. Right. Hmm. So uh, It's frustrating. Yeah, walk us yeah. through the next day and the next couple, three days, and, you know, all the stuff with Jude and everything. Like, walk us through that the, as, as things evolved. Day two, we literally spent repairing vehicles, mm-hmm. keeping the ANA from fighting each other because they had sent down a battalion from the north, from the 203rd Corps, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't mesh well with the 205th Corps guys. Mm-hmm. And then we were trying to repair, replace, patch up, rearm, refuel, replan. And do all that within, you know, a 24-hour cycle. And then we did that literally by, I think, 3 or 4 o'clock that afternoon. So it had been almost 24 hours had passed since we had gotten ambushed. And we had come up with, we had done all of that. Mm-hmm. And then um, come up with a plan to assault the hill the second time. But. The best part of the first day was after we broke contact and we made sure we had all of our people. We still managed to account for all of our people in an ambush and get everybody out of the kill zone. We got back to the desert in between Rige and Spirwangar in the open desert where we had 400 meters of killing field all the way around us. We made a big wagon wheel. 
Mm-hmm. Jared Hill pulled up next to my truck and said, you're not going to fucking believe this. And then that's when we got told that when he called in the contact report, the agency had a hot pred oversight watching us assault the hill. And that's when they said, hey, we're troops in contact and we're facing dozens, if not or excuse me, we're in contact with dozens, possibly a hundred fighters, and the seat or the uh, the task force ops came back to us and said, "Negative, you're facing. Uh, it's not dozens; it's hundreds, possibly Italian, uh, a thousand. You need to break contact now." And we were being enveloped, and we didn't know it. Right. So when we pulled back, and Jared told me that he was having that conversation with the desert eagle task force as we were exfilling they had gotten a b1 on station and that's when they the predator video had seen the shape of the series of i think like seven compounds um, mm-hmm. and they had technicals all in the compound and mm. bad guys running around and everything else and um jared said i'm gonna hit him i'm gonna hit him hard he said, I'm, as soon as I get this aircraft on station, and they got the JTAC over there, and Dave Hodges, me, Dave, and Bruce are all prior service guys, so we're all, you know, crusty old guys, and we literally just said, how do we, how can we, how does round two, or, you know, how does round two go to us since we just got a shellacking? Right. And Dave and Bruce had their mortar crews, those guys were phenomenal and they took all the ANA weapons battalion. So all the mortars, the ANA Russian mortars and the U S mortars, and they essentially set up a firing line, probably six or eight mortars. And what we did was the JTAC timed it so that when, when the B one cut loose with, I don't know how many it was four, six, 2000 pounders into each corner of the building and all that kinetic energy went inside as soon as the B-1 was uh, rounds free and he broke, we started firing all those mortar systems. So what we did was we fired in a linear sheath from north to south. So you could, they were watching it on Predator as like some of the dude, you could see all the puffs from the mortar rounds. Yeah. And I mean, we were, everybody was pitching in. We were peeling rounds passing them off they were throwing cheese charges on them and somebody was chucking them in a mortar and i mean they probably had six mortars going at one time and i don't know how many they probably i don't know how many the rounds they dropped they, they probably dropped 100 150 mortar rounds in the course of about three minutes but they dropped them in a linear sheath so anybody that did survive was met with like a rain of steel coming right. out of those coming out of those mortar tubes and um I think five minutes post blast, they were like, we have no life on target. Wow. Now we're getting, I mean, that's what, uh, that would, that's what you're looking for. Really? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's, that's the goal. Paradise Uh, is full today's boys. Yep. Yeah. Got to come back tomorrow. Uh, I mean that, that, that campaign, that bombing campaign that kind of followed the first assault. I mean, that really, so, I mean, I'm going to make it easier, but it definitely uh, softened up the enemy a little bit for the, the follow-on. Absolutely. 
without a doubt, because that, that series of compounds was right there on the Argandob River. So mm-hmm. I don't truthfully remember. Uh, I try not to talk about it if I can't remember it with a lot of confidence, but um, I don't remember if it was on the south side of the river, north side of the river, but it was right on the river. And um, that was a pretty mobile force. They said there was probably... They stopped counting. The, the predator operator in wherever the hell he was sitting said he quit counting at 100. Right. And he was watching them while the another bird was watching us. Right. Um, so, I mean, that was the the one thing that we were able to take from that obviously was that thank god nobody was badly hurt or killed um, right. when we should have been but to to be able so can, to throw a lick like that on them like all right yeah yeah kind of kind of makes up many it. times that bear <laughs> will bite you yeah. yeah and by then we had our hate up to a level that I've never seen it. Well, and now you're rearmed, you're refueled, you have a plan, you've softened the target. You know, now now the the AO, RC South, is fully aware that you're becoming the main effort now. So I mean you've got all the tools in your toolbox to kinda to do it right. How how does the second second approach go? So on if I remember correctly, on day three was when we started the, the deliberate assault on Spear One Garm. By then, we had planned on, like, you know, this vehicle will put fires into the firing posi- the fighting positions that were on top of right. the hill, and this vehicle will put this here, and, you know, this ODA is covering this arc from here to here. So it was much more methodical. Um, and, yeah, that was the morning Bill opened the party Cause right as the sun was coming, you know, we, we used to do this thing where we would like you, I learned in armor course. Right. So all the, (laughs) all, all the, all the big boys with the big toys, when they don't want the enemy to know how many vehicles are out there, they start all their vehicles. And my team did that as an SOP. We start all the vehicles at the same time to warm them up. So, okay. That was kind of a, a, a neat little, um, trick that I took. So that morning, probably four thirty ish, we were kitted up in assault formation, ready to go. As soon as the sun looked like it was just the heat tab in the sky was getting ready to come up, and as soon as it was coming over the rig desert, we started rolling, and um, we were getting near that choke point again. And we still did not have dedicated casts. And I get this call, you know, nothing you can do. I mean, I'm sitting on ammo. I got ammo in my lap. I mean, you know that this is going to be a brawl on my charts and boards. And everybody's, you're just as mentally prepared as you possibly can. I get a call on the Peltors and Bill says, stop, stop, stop. I'll call him stop. I'm like, Okay. Bill comes walking up beside my truck and he's carrying a Carl Gustav and he levels it like right at the first building right there. He goes, hey, Captain, more troops in contact. Get us some gas. 
Resigo 76 Fox 31 X will be advised. We are a tick, tick, tick at this time. Time now. Stand by for solar port. As soon as true, we the did, that's when the guy stuck, I think that's when the guy stuck his head up over the building. And Dave uh-huh. goes, RPG. And like it's on. That was probably 40, 50 meters away. And it was on. It was on. From that mm. point for hmm. for us in the lead. Now, Dave said that there was like a lag where when we got to, um, when we made it through the breach, I had stopped my vehicle at the base of the first berm where there was supposed to be a, um, where we would do the casualty collection point. Mm-hmm. Depending upon how far everybody made it into inside the, um, inside the the fishbowl where Spearwongar was located amongst all the villages. And um, Brian Pittman had pulled the truck right up to the edge of the burb so Dave could just see over it with a 50 cal. And that was the first time we got eyes on the school. Right. And Dave brought his team around to the left side of the berm. And then they dismounted. And when they did, I took the A&A weapons company or the the weapon squad and put like a squad of uh, RPK gunners on top of the berm to cover the schoolhouse and the hill. So we, when Dave said he was in position, we opened up with a support by fire position, acted as a local support by fire. And then Dave's guys started going, literally climbing up the side of Spear One Gar. And it was, it was that soft, baby powdery sand Mm -hmm. that just, you know, you might make it three feet and then you'd hit a soft spot and it'd just bog you down. Mm. And um, they got about three quarters of the way up the side of that hill and we were the ones doing the majority of the firing. And then David was on some Discovery Channel and he said, that's when the world took a shit on us. Mm. And he said, I just looked around and there was puffs. Like you could see the fire, hit the fire, feel the fire. And one of the guys stepped on Anna personnel. One of the A and A stepped on Anna personnel mine. And then that's when Dave realized that his assault force was standing in the middle of a a hasty minefield. Minefield, yeah. Jeez, man. And we still didn't know at that point that there were IEDs in the road. Mm-hmm. So Dave commenced assaulting the hill, and all I remember is we had. He had his team go through, I think, and clear the schoolhouse. He had he had one element go in and clear the schoolhouse and then go up the, the front side of Spearwangar where the other guys had stepped in the mine, on the mines trying to salt up the backside of the hill. And when they pulled down, they had a they had a couple of casualties. When they started taking casualties on the side of the hill, I mean that thing's eighty feet tall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Wide open. huge. You know, you could fill yeah. up literally. You could fill a football stadium with it. It, it was that mm-hmm. big, mm-hmm. and um, I started seeing movement in the in the schoolhouse, and that's when we didn't have any real world imagery, but there was a sharp drop on the back side of the schoolhouse where there was a little graveyard, and what happened was they ran out of the building when they saw Dave's guys coming to clear, and then when they saw them go up the hill, 
they started shooting at them from the backside of the hill and trying to get back in the school. That's why I took the weapon squad and then moved forward to the schoolhouse and re-cleared, created my own SOP of clearing close quarters battle with crew served weapons. And <laughs> that's all we had. I mean, one in the A and I mean, literally we stacked on the door Two of the guys had PKMs and we went in the number one man started firing a PKM inside that schoolhouse. And that's ultimately how we cleared it all the way to the front side where, um, Dave's guys were trying to get off the front side of the hill. Right. And I cleared to where I could see them so that they wouldn't shoot at us inside the school right. and called Dave. And Dave was trying to work up the Kazivac or the, the medevac. And that's when I called the Sade guys to come forward. And I don't know what route they took or how they missed it, but they came barreling over the hill I put them in, I put Tom and his guys in position. And that's when I called for the second truck to come forward with Greg Stuby and Sean, because now we'd reached the LOA. We had the right. schoolhouse. Um, yeah. And we knew that we had pushed whatever bad guys that were on top of the hill, or we thought we had pushed whatever guys were on top of the hill out of it. And, uh, and then that's, of course, when. Uh, Sean and Greg's vehicle struck that um, double stacked Russian tank mine. And that was on that road coming up out of. Uh... Yeah, the berm coming out mm-hmm. of the Reed Desert through the choke point and just went right over the top of the berm to the schoolhouse. That was the main road. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. I mean, oh, you can you can drive three trucks over something and it, you know miss it by inches, and the third one just happens to go one inch left or one inch right or or whatnot. Um, when you were in the schoolhouse right before that, did you encounter any resistance in the schoolhouse? No. Or no, I mean, it was good. They heard. from the time we stacked and started into the schoolhouse, which was basically just nothing but a cinder block shell of a schoolhouse. Right. Um, but insurgents had been living in it and using it. There was a little, like a little firing range up there. It was a training area. I mean, they had a, this little school had a latrine. They had all kinds of like instructions written on the wall on how to shoot in front of a helicopter to hit a helicopter mm-hmm. when it's moving. Um, they had all that, they had burned all that black soot so they could take their shoes and throw it up on the ceiling so you would know, mm-hmm. you know, people know you're under the foot of the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nobody in the school, but we didn't know that. But right. there were windows on the front side of the school that faced the village to the north. And mm-hmm. all I can tell you is that may have been the best thing we could have done was when he started rattling away inside that school with that PKM, you know, rounds are probably bouncing in every single one of them rooms and down the hallway and everything else. And they just <laughs> probably was like, nope, not today. I'm out. Right. Yeah. I used to sit there and look at those bullet holes and be like, how fucking loud was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to get inside the building because 
before Tom and those guys pulled up on the right-hand side of the schoolhouse where we were stacked at, I mean, the rounds were getting so close that gritty part of the cinder block was falling down, you know, hitting our helmets and falling down in our uniforms. But I mean, that was probably 30 or 40 pop marks on that whole wall right there where we were stacked mm -hmm. up. And I'm like, well, we get killed in there. We get killed standing out here. So at least let's go inside there where, you know, we got some cover. Right. And, uh, we had, we had pretty good, pretty good A and A as long as you went with them, they do anything you ask them to, hmm. which at that time was good enough. That's, yeah. that's reasonable. You know, that's a, that's <laughs> a leadership they principle right there. They weren't trying to shoot us either, so we were happy with that. Yeah. That's also reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't, I mean, we, American or Afghan, generally as a leader, you don't ask your subordinates to just do something you're not willing to do with them. Um, that's an expectation that, especially in, in the military, that if exists for good reason so it makes sense that that would translate over to the afghans themselves yeah you would think um, you would think it's, yeah. it's a, i mean it's one of those human dynamics that it's it has to do with that invariable trust that you build over time with them and you know they i mean it came with his own set of frustrations but we always sure. felt like we I mean, we had, I listened to my enlisted guys who had been on more rotations even than I had before 2005. The team had been up in Aruzgan mm -hmm. um, and TK on the rotation before that in 2004. And then, you know, they'd been in Kandahar in 2003. And to, so it, they knew how uh, to integrate and operate with the uh, ANA and um or any host nation i mean you just know how to build you know build build rapport you build tr you build rapport you build trust and you build confidence and then once you do that then um when people that's just a human dynamic once people trust you they'll do whatever um whatever you ask them to do or whatever you need them to do because uh, there's some sense of ownership with you and um it was pretty, pretty, pretty impressive to see some of the things that they did on their own. Um, Taz was one of those guys, like he would just get so mad and he was the, I think he was the ANA first sergeant. He had been a, you know, a private and a squad leader and a platoon sergeant with us. And psh, that dude went out at, like when we were getting fired at while we were treating our casualties, he took two other A and A and went to a, a wall where they knew there was a bunch of Taliban laying underneath the tree and he dropped about four hand grenades right over into the <laughs> The problem was he didn't tell me he was doing it. So all we saw was that <laughs> somebody that was on the roof was smart enough to call down and said, Hey, I got A and A coming through the marijuana field after we heard all those explosions. Oh yeah. And Taz was Jeez. grinning like a possum. Uh -huh. Oh God. <laughs> What's he been never doing? Hear the, you're never going to hear the end of that one. No. don't let We, we didn't <laughs> let him play with explosives because he would play with explosives. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the schoolhouse. Um, well, are you in the schoolhouse when you hear the IED go off? 
I had just come back out the door and positioned Tom and his guys in the sod A vehicle. And that's when I called for the vehicle to reinforce. And then that's when they struck the IED. And then I tried to call Jared and I didn't know Jared was dismounted with two or three other guys and they were right behind the vehicle when it struck the IED. So they were completely knocked unconscious and Jared wasn't coherent by the time I got to him anyway, but he said that a, uh, I think a, a mortar or something landed right beside him and he thought it was his leg because his legs were very painful and um he's glad it wasn't but it was very discerning and that one of the things i didn't talk about at the time and i didn't talk about it wasn't really allowed to uh in the book was didn't talk about tom's participation um tom tom should have received either a distinguished service cross or a medal of honor as well um, the capability wasn't something that I could write about in the book. Um, mm-hmm. and I was not able to reach those guys and physically obtain their permission to talk about them. Mm-hmm. So since I couldn't, I had to kind of take them out of it. But, um, yeah, Tom, Tom was, I think one of the first ones there, if not the first guy there about the same time that Jude got there. Hmm. I'll tell you this, and this is not the first time this has come up with respect to Tom. Um, he, he, did, he neglected to mention that in his, <laughs> uh, in his interview. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very humble, very yeah, humble man. He, he downplayed you know. his role in that whole operation a lot, but yeah. You know. Oh, he did. We could read between the lines. We knew. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, we, we, they were part of our team. I mean, Mm -hmm. everywhere we trained together, everything we did together. I mean, we always had those guys go with us. I mean, they were probably them and the interpreters were the key components that made us successful because they were, they gave us the ability to confirm or deny. Um, yeah. And Tom, uh, it it's difficult to not have not not be enabled to tell the whole story because there's stuff that I had that you know like one of the things I'll never do is I'll never air our dirty laundry you know whatever issues we may have had you know arguments amongst ourselves complaining about your own people or your own organization doesn't do it any good and um, yeah Tom probably. Yeah, Tom's a hero. Like I said, there's a lot of things you see in in a business like mine. You do it as long as I did. Um, and everything that they did, they did under direct enemy fire. Um, and it's like you said, it's it's relatively untold what, what the Sades were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of that's for good reason and they prefer it that way. But, uh, you know, I'm sure... Tom will be rolling his eyes when he listens to this at some point, but um, there will be the first time I see that either. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, Captain, great idea. 
Yeah, no, that sounds about right. What we need to do is we need to get you, you two guys together in a just in a brewery in in Asheville, and we should just film that instead. That should be some high entertainment. You know what would be good is if we could figure out some way to do like a reunion and bring together a bunch of dudes. Oh yeah, yeah. that would be pretty absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I know it's it's a goal of ours as well. I just got to yeah. talk to uh, Bruce Scully and came out to see me a couple days ago after I got home. And, uh, I mean, he's still doing the job. That's crazy, crazy. to me. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, that's... Now, now they're just getting it on in another country. It just right, yeah, now, now, now it's just not on the news anymore. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not important it because we're not, we're not at war there. We're not at war, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course not. Just hanging out in Ghana. <clears throat> right. <laughs> <laughs> Or insert African nation here. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so I mean, you know, one thing that kind of struck me about uh, the timeliness was that they were able to get uh, Greg and Sean out pretty quick on the helicopter. Um, you know, you guys had—I mean, relatively, considering that you, this is 2006 and you don't have Pasab, you don't have all these intermediary stations, right? Um. But I mean, from your point of view, what was, what was the, the effort of getting that medevac out like? All I remember after Jude going through what he went through to get, because I took, I carried Sean to the CCP. So right. when we came to the vehicles, Tom had already done his thing and left and gone back to the truck. Mm-hmm. Jude had Greg in the ditch trying to get his equipment off and treat him. Sometime in there was when I had asked Jude, where's Sean? Of course, the vehicle was just in a gazillion right. pieces and the, the all you could see was the engine block and the carriage. And, um, and he said, I don't know. Maybe I think he's still in the vehicle. Oh. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to go home and n- not have something to bury or confirm. Mm-hmm. So I crawled around to the front side of the truck and just the the smoke was so black. It just made you like it was nauseous It burn your nose and your eyes. It's just highly toxic. I'll probably die in a month from heavy metals or something. But I was feeling around and felt a leg and thought that's what it was. And I started pulling on it and it got really, really heavy. And then it started moving and Sean had just been completely partially blown into the, the probably the dirt, the soft mm. dirt in the wall and the explosion oh, yeah. probably saved him from being smashed into little pieces and anyway, he wasn't very coherent, so we dragged him. I managed to get him drugged down into the ditch with Jude while we were treating Jude and Voss, or Jude and treating Greg Stuby and Sean Mishra in the ditch. And then Sean didn't, you know, we went through as much trauma management as we possibly could. And, um, Greg was just in such a bad state that it was going to take. That's when I called. Bill came right after that to the to the site, and um, 
started calling for Riley Stevens to, to get the medic over there. And, um, I did my treatment on Sean and then lifted him up and, um, got him to the casualty collection point. A lumberjack is a lot of weight. Yes. <laughs> You're a big man, Sean. You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and so know. those guys were flown out from the LZ or the what we is didn't now. Think the, or... We didn't think we were going to. Honestly, we didn't think we'd, we're, the medevac bird would, would be able to come in. I'm um, surprised they did. What we ended up doing with a medevac bird was, I, I think Jared wasn't even coherent. I think Dave managed to get the medevac called in and secure like a very hasty HLZ. And by then we had probably six or seven total casualties with the A and A. And, uh, that included the guy who had his leg blown off and got multiple gunshot wounds. And then the two casualties from the, uh, from the ID blast. And, um, All I remember was they said the bird was inbound. We were still taking quite a bit of very accurate fire. And we were even getting, I, I don't I don't really remember if it was mortar rounds or if it was like uh, Ricola's rifle rounds, but we, we were taking some kind of either direct or indirect explosive fire. And I don't remember who it was that said, birds 30 seconds out and um bill said well what we'll do is when the bird comes in and flares every position is going to open up and go cyclic with everything they've got and Mm -hmm. that will make sure the bird can get in and get past the brown out and then get touched down and um we couldn't tell i didn't see it but apparently they fired an as the bird came over, the little grape huts and stuff, probably about 200 feet from Spear One Gar, they fired an RPG round and the crew chief heard it hit the tailgate and it didn't detonate. And then they peppered the bird. I think it had, I think they said it had 27 bullet holes in it, but it touched down. And we got all the casualties on there. And then um, that had, they were on the ground for maybe 30 seconds, I guess. it's It always seems much longer. But right. um, Bill said, everybody ready, fire. And we went cyclic again, and that gave the bird. And, and I mean, usually they don't like to do that because they can lose control of it. But I mean, they just literally went straight up. Yeah. And um, I don't know all the engineering or avionics behind it, but then they they turned the aircraft to gain airspeed hard over that open area between us and Rige. And then they got their airspeed and they got our guys out of there. And that was like, thank you, Lord. Yeah. Um. So after the after the medevac, the guys are on their way. 
Um, you have the hill now. You have the top of the hill. You've got the plateau. You've got the schoolhouse. What's what's the next steps? I think Dave got set in his five positions. We re shifted all of the vehicle positions. You know, basically you, your your priorities are work. So we start emplacing positions, putting in you know sectors of fire, putting the A and A in, um, clearing. You know, trying to set up a defense. Um, you know, changing out batteries and radios, and you know, rearming off the trucks and everything else, and then um, at some point, kind of withering fire started to come in and then it just turned into a maelstrom and i think that was the first time that they um they attempted to counterattack to push us off of the hill i'm sure it wasn't the last either no 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 that that happened they 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 counterattacked us twice on Mm -hmm. the first day oh wow and then um it kind of ceased at night and went uh, really eerily silent. The next morning, right at the sunrise call to prayer, we got hit again. And that happened. Yep. Um, we would fight it out for till like 10 o'clock, two or three hours. Sure. And then during the heat of the day, nothing. And then right, right before the sun goes down, for nighttime hmm. call of prayer, they hit us again, and they did that for two days. And at at some point by that that end of that second day, so at that point we had faced two counterattacks and two direct assaults on the hill to try to to try to push us off of it. And that the whole time that this is going on, Jared had been the uh, Sergeant Major had made, and Derek, the LNO, had made a C2 node inside the schoolhouse. So now we had good, solid communications with the Canadians, and we started really bringing class, CAS in, uh, rotary and fixed wing to start reducing some of these, um, some of these fighting positions where we knew that the enemy was massing and we couldn't do anything about it. And that's kind of the point where the the whole operation shifts. You know, the the initiative. I mean, they're able to to take the schoolhouse and they're able to bring their reserves in. Um, and that's kind of the beginning of the end of the main operation of Medusa, if I, if I'm correct. Well, what ultimately what happened was during those two days that we were fighting off, we fought off the the counter the two counterattacks and the two direct attacks. Basically, the Canadians said, "You're now the main effort." Right. Well, what happened was essentially because the Canadians did not continue to push forces across the Argandob into Poshmool, where the schoolhouse was, they kind of squat held at Masum Gar. Mm-hmm. Well, the enemy then makes us the main enemy. So right. the end of that third, I think that third night was when we started getting all these reports that they, you know, they got FLIR video of like five or six trucks at a time full of fighters were rushing across the Argandob River to put fighters down on the 
and that's when uh, Ron Walker and uh, Mike, the other the senior JTAC, were able to get Spectre on station. So by the end of the third night, we had two sorties of Spectre flying the only periods of darkness and six sorties it's a it's a it's a record six sorties of specter at that time was sent back winchester they killed over 100 insurgents per night wow that's efficient <laughs> i mean that would you say not bad, bad. <laughs> yeah not bad <laughs> i've heard better not bad i don't know i mean I've played a little Call of Duty. I've gotten a couple gun gunships in myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, hey, it all counts, man. I mean, so, so, somebody got on a kill streak. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, uh, like I said, I, I, I mean, I, I watched some of it, and you know, they've got a capability where they can watch it on their computer. And mm-hmm. literally, when these guys would start, you know, migrating south of the river, um, I mean, at that point, we were pretty much exhausted. And the only yeah. time we would break to 50% security out of the whole day was the two and a half hours or three hours that we knew Spectre was going to be on station. Right. And like some people listen to soothing sounds of the Serengeti or, you know, the <laughs> rainforest. Ours was. <laughs> <laughs> Nap time, boys. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man. Uh, there's there's some truth to that. <laughs> oh, very much yeah. so. Yeah. But um, Jared, at that point, by day three, had gotten um, a Jasoa, which by doctrine is Joint Special Operations Aviation Airspace over the top of all of Panjway and. Uh, Poshmool and the Argonaut River Valley. And what that did was it gave us as the SF task force, the operational control of all the assets there with the exception of the ground command of the Canadians. So basically no longer were the Canadians able to tell us whether we could have close air support or spectra support or even indirect fire support. So at one point there was a time when Bruce and his guys got surrounded in um, the dragon's back. And that was a story and a mission amongst all of this. That is spear one gar and Around that time, we had, I think, three um, 155 howitzers, four 120s, I think a dozen 81s, probably about the same amount of 60 millimeter mortars, and... um, We were given operational control of all of it. And um, <laughs> I feel like Darth Vader. I was like, 
<laughs> now it's my time. With great power comes great responsibility. Drop Spider Man. All that uh, all that honor, integrity, and duty right. honor country stuff. I'm like, no. I just want to blow people. it all up. Is it so bad? You just want to kill people? Hate, hate, uh, hate, 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 hate. You gotta live for the hate, man. <laughs> Actually, I've got uh, I got something I need to send you guys. Uh, Scott Garrett, my senior weapons guy, uh, he's another one. He he's competing with Chief for who's who's killed the most people in before he dies, and um, he had these like patches made that said hate. Anyway, I send you a picture. It's like hate, hate, hate. That's hate written <laughs> all over it. Senior oh, officers man. don't find that stuff funny. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> like, they have no sense of humor. Zero. None at all. Yeah. None. And when I was in, uh, when I went back in 2017, I took a patch. Uh, Luke had worn a patch in 2012 that says, fuck this shit. And he wore it on every mission. I was like, I'm going to take that with me when I go back. So, I borrowed it from him when I went back in 2017 and wore it on the back of my helmet in the Apache. But, you know, no one flies in us with Apache. It's just me and my pilot. And who gives a shit what patch I wear on my helmet? We had this first sergeant. It's like, you need to take that off, chief. I was like, I'm not taking that off. He's like, that's not very professional. I was like, I kill people. That's my job. That's not, I don't, I don't care. Um, he's like, well, what if a general sees it? I was like, if the general walks into our, to- into our you know, crew room right now, then that's the least thing that I'm, I don't think he's looking at my helmet. I was like, and I don't fly generals in my helicopter, so I'm not worried about it. <laughs> Some people cannot embrace the hate in their own heart. He's, he's, he's a Blackhawk guy. <laughs> oh, well, that doesn't say, yeah, that, okay, enough said. <laughs> my wife was laughing the other day. We were talking about um, when she when she used to be in the officer's wives club, these people would come in and, you know, she does all kinds of volunteer. God bless her. She does all kinds of volunteer work. And, you know, they make those fancy little wooden helicopters or whatever. Oh yeah. And all the aviation wives would come in from over at Simmons and they're like, Oh, my husband's a. Whatever, you know, a 60 pilot or a Chinook pilot. And my wife, God love her being a good, you know, enlisted and NCO's wife and then Green Beret's wife. She's like, oh, when my husband goes to kill people, your husband gets him alive, gives him a ride. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll tell him you guys appreciate that. We always like to call the uh, um, Blackhawk pilots Uber and then the uh, Chicago, the Chinook, the Chinook pilots are, U- are Uber X. <laughs> Oh my God, that's too much. <laughs> Some of them embrace it. I've seen pictures of Blackhawks that have like the Uber placard on their door. I'm like, okay, all right, yeah. at least you accept it. You know that's what? Fine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's if you, can, if you can grow to accept your own weakness, then your hey, everyone plays is very a part, strong. right? Everyone yeah. plays a part. As long as you own your part, that's all I ask. That's right. Yeah. Like if you were a supply guy, be the best supply guy you can be until every bitch in that bar. You were a supply guy. <laughs> then we're good. I don't care. Just don't go in the bar and say that you were a pipe hitter if you were a supply guy. That's right. That's all I ask. Everyone did well, their part. I'm- you know, that's the, the the great illusion, I think, especially about Hollywood and media and stuff like that. Is like even in the highest tiered units, there's 
shit bags. Turds. You know, Turds. Like the, oh, there's, yeah. there's shit bags in every organization from top to bottom, from mm-hmm. the Joe smoking behind the company to Dev Group. That is the, a, that the is proportion a true might life. be different in mm-hmm. different communities, but they all proportion got is definitely the proportion is definitely different. <laughs> oh, yeah. But but there's shit bags everywhere, just like there's good dudes everywhere. No, you're absolutely right. That is you're throwing truth bombs all over the place, Luke. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wore their flag jacket today, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're uh, a top two percent podcast. Come on. I'm the Spectre Gunshift of Truth Bombs. Da, 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 da. No there you go. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, we'll, put, we'll put that on a shirt. The Spectre yeah. Gunship of Truth Bombs. <laughs> there you go. You uh, need to put that on a coffee cup. Yeah, so when you guys good. get up to the, you know, whatever it is, the Fox level of Hannity podcast. We've been on Fox already. We already got invited back. <laughs> you got to do it, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, did I you guys really get invited on? Yeah, we were yeah, on a few, uh, few weeks ago. Months ago. Months ago? <laughs> yeah, we were uh, on Cavuto's show. Uh, he had us on like the week that Afghanistan was falling apart. His researchers found the podcast and they invited us on and we talked for a little bit. And they... You know, it's funny you said that because Cavuto contacted me probably a dozen times. But they would do like instead of planting... Like they would contact me. I would be looking at a boat with my wife in the parking lot of the boat dealership. And right. they'd be like, Hey, this is Stephanie from Neil Cavuto. Could you be on in fifteen minutes? I'm like yeah. <laughs> They did the same thing for us. Yeah. It was very last minute. Are, yeah. Is this a crank call? Are you serious? And she's like, No, 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 I'm very serious. Well, they they first they contacted us early one morning, like, Hey, can you be on this afternoon? We're like, Yeah, sure, great, we'll make it happen. And we got ready, but then because Afghanistan was legit going to shit at this point, this is like the day that the people were falling off the C-17, they were televising every briefing. So like there was a State Department briefing, a DOD briefing, and Joe Biden was supposed to address the country. So we got pushed because of all these extra uh, press conferences and stuff. So we got pushed to another day, and then we finally got on that time, but... um. I mean, honestly, it was a good experience. Like, Neil was really respectful. He was nice. He's very level-headed. He was, I think he was genuinely surprised that we didn't get on. Actually, I think Rob O'Neill or one of those hotheads was on, like, right before us. Um, Just, like, just talking out of his ass. So, we came on. We were super level-headed. We're like, you know, we're really just wanting to get the message out there that you, you know, everyone's service wasn't a waste, that we need to be focused on the Afghan people, like, you know, and if there's any veterans out there that are struggling, you should just take pride in your service because you did your job and you can't, couldn't have been asked to do anything else. Yep. And that was just basically our message. And um, he was pretty appreciative that we didn't, he, he offered us the bait to go down the rabbit hole and get all political and, mm-hmm. um, and we didn't take yeah. it. And he was, he seemed pretty appreciative of that, but he definitely gave us the, the opportunity to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which has never been a, th- a th- focus for us. We've tried to keep it pretty apolitical on the podcast. We try. You know what? If you can do that, je- I mean, that's the thing that I, like, you've got this broad base of people. If you, I mean, I, I got a North Carolina public education. Never claimed to be anybody or anything. 
I'm only here because I worked with a team of dudes that were a shitload better than me. I just work hard enough to be in their presence. Mm. They were the real value in what we did and who we were. But I mean, you got people that are always, I mean, they did that to me on Fox a lot. Mm-hmm. Like would try to goad you into saying something. U.S. Army Special Operations Command allowed me to be the first SF soldier to go and do national media and write a book with DOD approval. Mm. I am not going to go out and kick the president in the balls so you can have a spike in ratings right? because that degrades who people think we are. And who we are... Is in truth better than ninety nine percent of all the other Americans because they f- they think that who they are is based on who they voted for in the last election. Mm-hmm. We don't. Mm-hmm. We see inherently only we do what is best for our people. Mm-hmm. If that means choose something that's liberal, or if that choose means choose something conservative. It might fall in one of those categories, but at the end of the day, our goal is to do what's best for everybody, not what's important for one group or for an opinion. Right. And you can't ruin that. You guys upheld that because no matter how tainted the American people are, they still expect us to be what they think we are. Well, uh, so the rest of your tour in 2006, was it was it in Kandahar? Was it in Panjway? Or were you just kind of like bounced all over the place? No, we essentially, after we were able to season hold Spear One Gar, we did not leave hmm. the hill. Um, oh, okay. There is an entire separate battle called um, Eagle Summit. Mm-hmm. That was the second phase of Operation Medusa. So mm-hmm. what happened was we were promised and told that there would be a large number of security forces that would move into the Panjway Valley on the north and south side of the river, that we would build a number of checkpoints and conduct stability and security operations, um, and that we would... Um, be expanding our footprint because of uh, the stability that we'd been able to create there. Ultimately, what ended up happening was the exact opposite. After the insurgency realized that there was nobody coming in to backfill us, um, at one point there was over 200 IEDs put in and around spear on guard to keep us from leaving and going anywhere or doing anything. And what happened was in November, we got word that three different insurgent groups were filtering back into the Valley. And um, we got authorization to conduct a second offensive operation called Operation Eagle Summit. And what we did was the exact opposite of how we fought the first time. 
So the first time we used high mobility with vehicles and ATVs and with a lot of close air support. For Eagle Summit, what we did was dismounted foot operations and indirect fire because we had the ability to bring all of that to bear from Spear One Gar without having to get close air support. So that's exactly what happened. And uh, in December, we began Operation Eagle Summit and pushed into Mushan to clear uh, Mushan and the villages north of Mushan on the north side of the Argandab River. It's funny. I've, I've noticed that almost annually between 2006 and 2012, the Horn of Panjo was cleared. It was cleared in 2012. It was cleared in 2011. I know that the Canadians cleared it a couple times. You guys did it in 2006. Like, it's like, well, it's that time of year. Let's clear the horn again. Um, well, I mean, the thing is, is people who are, who understand, that are culturally attuned, you have to be able to sweep, clear, hold, and influence mm-hmm. a place like that where they consider that their heartland. That's the Taliban heartland. You know, Zangabar Gar, what we call the Dragon's Back, mm-hmm. is where Mullah Omar, 1997, after basically winning the five-year civil war, proclaimed himself the supreme leader in Afghanistan, put on the white robes, like, of course, there's a reason that they don't want you to take it or to hold it or to influence. The other thing that I, I'm really impressed, General Abrams, like the fourth son, General Abrams, the force comm commander, um, he was the RC South commander when I got brought back over to Institute Village Stability Operations. And I'm telling you what, for a guy, I, I'm not a big fan of general officers, but for a guy who comes from a family like that, mm-hmm. um, who you think would be so rigid, he would literally have me come in civilian clothes with a beard, grab a plate of chow from the chow hall, come to his office. And we would take a – now, I'm a whole promotable major in there with, you know, a three-star general. But he wanted to know – what did I know? What did I understand about Panjway? What did I know about Argandop, Northern Kandahar? Mm-hmm. Like he was trying to pick my brain at every opportunity so he and General White could maximize their capabilities as a fighting force to be able to influence the battlefield and the political force or the, you know, the human terrain, the, the people. <clears throat> um, I've never really worked with and run into a general who put that much effort into understanding and knowing his enemy, like mm-hmm. real Sun Tzu stuff. Well, here, this is now, this is very interesting because mm-hmm. this is where yours and our paths collide because while you're having those conversations with general Abrams and Kandahar, who is RC South commander, but his actual job is he is the commanding general of third ID. 
He has one company from Third ID in the entire area of RC South in sustained contact, and they're sitting on Spurwangar, and they are Luke and I. No kidding. No shit. Like, the reason he was asking you about, I mean, I'm sure he had lots of reasons, but among the reasons was that he had one company of Third ID soldiers, his guys, on Spurwangar, and that was that was his third ID footprint in the country at that time, um, outside of the FOB. So yeah. it's very cool that while we were sitting on Spurwangar, fighting you know day in and day out, that he had the fourth the foresight to ask you, who had been there seven times before that. You know what are my guys? What are my guys fighting right now? And we we love Jeremy Abrams. He's he's already booked on the podcast. We're having him on in March. Um. Yeah, he uh, he, yeah. he did a pretty good job of taking care of us. Of course, we were we were his golden boys because we were the only ones in his division yeah. <laughs> getting in the shit. But I mean, he flew out there and talked to us all personally, and uh, yeah, we we needed forty Mike Mike and milk, and that's what we got. Like the next yeah, day, yeah, you guys got to get him because he's still stationed here at Fort Bragg. I think he just retired. Did he? Mm-hmm. He. I'll just tell you something retired. else too. Um, I think contributes to him as a man. There was a bunch of stuff going on when I I got thrown into the pool of, uh, I think, volunteers for sequestration by Obama in 2013, and I was forced into retirement in 2014. Um, when I got put on the medical re- forced medical retirement list, I was nine months short of making lieutenant colonel, and I was going to get my choice. I was a second choice for battalion command, so I would have gotten a preferred battalion mm-hmm. command in third group but because intel crosses over with money too many times um i had some unpleasant run-ins with uh, people from the department of justice so when i came home they just said fuck it and, they were, and i just came home yeah and said you know what i'm fucking done i don't want nothing else to do with it um, I kind of had a meltdown. I didn't even show up to work for four months. I was like, I fucking quit, man. I just quit. I can't do this shit. The one person who didn't overreact or judge me was fucking General Abrams. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so many officers in the military are so quick to look the other way or let their people get slaughtered in, you know, command opinion instead of like, okay, well, I'd rather be on the side of due process and justice and say, just because a guy's wearing a green suit, he's still innocent until proven guilty. Sure. You know what I mean? But they investigated me for two years, even withheld my security clearance after I retired. Couldn't get a job for two years after I retired and then ended up what we already knew, which was I didn't steal millions of dollars because I was still driving the same 2003 pickup truck that my father-in-law left me. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, I must be an absolute, you know, mastermind. I'm Whitey Bulger of the army. I'm going to. Right, right. Yeah. But um, that's, no, that's I why I went out and wrote a book because you had all that extra money stashed around. You had the yeah, absolutely. Book sales. Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, Abrams was one of those dudes that, like I said, 
even in my line of work, we had a ton of respect for because he legitimately wanted to know, you know, it's Sun Tzu. If you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemies, you won't win any battles. If you know yourself, but you don't know your enemy, or you know your enemy, but you don't know yourself, you'll only win half your battles. But if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you win every battle. And he truly believed in that. And he wanted to know anything and everything that everybody knew about that battle space in order to be as effective as possible. And for a guy who served over the continuum of 14 years, I can't say that about many. Yeah. At all. I'd say it's a real shame that he showed up late to, to the fight. Um, I'm telling you what, man, if we could have had him running village stability operations, which is really, I was in the Pentagon when, um, general reader ripped the cover off of the Vietnamese Hamlet pacification program and put the cover on village stability operations and told big army, this is how you win there. You win at the lowest level. Hmm. You don't try to make a nationalist people out of somebody that doesn't even understand patriotism. Let them ha- let each district and each province have their own independence. Let them right. be able to fight for it and defend it. Hmm. And then you make allies with as many of them as possible. But as long as they can feed their children, send them to school, feel safe. Hey, man, they'll side with you every single day. Yeah. And it's funny you mention it like that. We had a we did a episode with another podcast a couple months ago, and that question was posed. You know, how do you how where do we fuck up? Where do we screw up Afghanistan? What should we have done differently? And that was more or less our answer was, well, you know, Obviously, there's lots of answers to that. But one is that trying to treat all of Afghanistan as one nation with a centralized government was a mistake from day one. You can't do it. You have way too many tribes, way too many cultures, way too many, you know, different dialects of languages. I mean, they don't even speak the same language. They don't even believe that they belong to the same group. So to try to tell them like, hey, a Pashto is going to lead you, that's not going to fly. You know, just like having an Uzbek lead them is not going to fly. Um so that was kind of our answer, and it's, it's kind of refreshing to hear that from you as well. Just that you, we certainly there's a lot of mistakes that were made, but I think it's evidence. You know, when you talked about your experience with the ANA versus our experience with the ANA, and then my experience with the KPF and in, in Coast in 2017, it's very illustrative that when they are from the area that they're fighting in. They have possession, they have ownership, they believe in their fight, and they fight much harder. Uh, but when they are just thrown in, they could give two shits. And you know what? It's the big army, GPF, and, and that's why I wish somebody like Abrams would have been able to be a part of that sooner, mm-hmm. was because all the paradigms that the army gets into with Oh, we need to integrate everybody. No, Afghanistan is one of those places that's so, that dichotomy is so different and segregated. You only want people that are recruited from certain areas, districts and provinces to defend Mm. and fight in those districts and provinces. You don't need a unified army or command because they don't understand it. They don't believe in it. You know, a, uh, a Hazara lieutenant 
is not going to be able to command a bunch of Shia or Sunni, you know, or Uzbeki or Tajiks and vice right. versa. Um, but if those units, if those units are developed and integrated so that they fight for their home, they'll fight like wild animals. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they, what they did was where, where we saw the ANA 205th Corps start to disintegrate was they took that personal relationship from us with the ANA after 2007, after Spear One Guard, because they saw so many successes that we had that they start, oh, well, we want to be able to do that. So they'd slice this company out to the Brits and this slunk company out to the Americans and this company out to the Australians. Well, they're used to being with us where we make sure they get paid. We make right. sure they know if they get killed, they're going to get a salacia payment to their family. Um, they're going to have their 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 possessions return to their family when they're killed. Um, I mean, all of those things come into play when a man thinks about his mortality and they don't understand fighting and dying for nothing. We might not agree with how and what they fight for, right. which is why I made everybody learn Pashtun Wali whether you're mm-hmm. talking about Netawate or Safe Passage or Badal, Blood Feud. Um, that's how these people think. That's how they think Allah is going to reward them or punish them when they get to paradise. So so you got to be able to understand those laws because you can then use them to your advantage. So many people did not un- understand that and did not even try to do it. Or didn't want to understand it. Mm-mm. You know. That's that's that that's something else that gets in the way of of their goals or their uh, their way of doing things, and they're only there for six months, so they're not going to take the time to learn it. That's why I used to fight against what we would call effects based organizations. So, like civil affairs, they would come, they came in and built that wall along the Argandab River. They spent like five point two million dollars building these Hesco barriers to go along the border of the Argonaut River and the north side of Panjway. For what? They wanted to have something on paper on their OER that they can say they that did they did. Something. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a problem with, with the whole rotation. The, the way that we send units for six-month, nine-month, 12-month deployments. You know, that commander shows up on ground day one. It's like, this is what we're going to do by the time that I leave. We're gonna, I'm going to have this, this, and this, and this accomplished. And that's all he cares about is that he gets those accomplished, not whether they yep. measure into the grander plan of whether it actually makes the area safer or accomplishes the war on terror. Because as far as he knows, he has no idea that the guy before him did all the exact same things already. Yep. Like it's already been done. Yep. But he doesn't care because he's the one to do it. It goes on his OER, not on the well, other Well, that's guys. why I absolutely balked at and spoke out against battle space owners from day one. Bottom line is that when we talked about that paradigm that worked successfully in the early years where you had conventional forces that fell under the operational command of special operations commanders at the tactical and operational level, they got completely away from that and started putting conventional units and their commanders in charge of battle spaces that they are not inherently trained, equipped, operationalized, funded, and resourced to be able to know how to train or to to control and to provide 
mission command or C2 for. Mm. Well, then soft forces are forced because of big army to fall under those battle space commanders. I can tell you personally of one of the ODAs that I did operations with when I was in Panjway as a VSO director or a VSO district advisor, the ODA got kicked out of theater because they did what they inherently do, which is collect their own intelligence, identified a group of Taliban with a Pakistani ISI handler, but because they put in for a generalized 5W operation to go into the northern side of the Argandab, where the battle space owner owned, they it, it was actually fucking brilliant. They had two SF guys get in civilian clothes, that's all I'll say, in the back of a dump truck. One of the guys dressed up who was the detachment commander who looked very much like a Hazara in mm. civilian clothes, and the interpreter drive the dump truck. They drove to the checkpoint, and when the Pakistani ISI guy came out with the Taliban, they sprung the trap. They jumped out of the truck and over the truck, shot them all, then collected up all the intelligence and drove back south of the river. And the battle space owner called the SF task force and had them kicked out of theater and tried to have the detachment commander fired because they did an operation, but because of operational security, they could not share it with mm -hmm. the battle space owner. So even though they still put in a con op because they didn't reveal the true source of what they were doing because under our bylaws, we don't have to because the regular army doesn't do the intel collection that we do. Because fuck you, that's why. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you were trying to say. Don't you get, get me started. <laughs> oh, man. But no, I mean, that's just... I mean, that sort of stuff happened all the time. Mm -hmm. And you just, at some point, you're like, who's... I mean, who's making these decisions here? Mm. And that's the thing. You can't fight... like. On one hand, Afghanistan is the infantryman's war in every term of like in every definition of the term. It is meant to be walked around. You are not meant to traverse Afghanistan on a vehicle like horseback at most. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something you are going to win with armor. It's not a war that you're going to win with naval vessels. It's not even really a gun or a, a war for fighter jets. You know, it's a war for guys on the ground to take and seize ground. Um, mm -hmm. but it's not a conventional fight either. It's not, it's not something you can take, you know, a battalion of Marines and march across the country and call it, you know, conquered. You can't do it. Not a single person right. in 10,000 years has been able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I would argue that the way that the, you know, the SFODAs all the way up, you know, from the beginning of the invasion until they got usurped by ISAF is the way that you have to you have to fight the war in Afghanistan. You have to recognize the cultural differences. You have to embed within those groups. You can't operate out of a fob. You have to be in the villages. You have to be with the people. And you have to understand that that group is different than this group. And it's okay. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the way that a conventional army fights. And that, I think that probably started us down the road to, you know, mm-hmm. what ended up happening last year. Yeah. Just simply understanding that the people are the key terrain. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you have, that is a human minefield in and of itself. And you have to figure out how to navigate that every single day. I mean, one of the proudest things that I think I can say about my team is that even when we had friction and problems with units, we never had a single green on blue Mm. because they never doubted our loyalty to them or what we were there to try to do for them. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of different ways, obviously, that that conversation could go. But I mean, sure. And and it doesn't, I'll be very honest with you too, it does not degrade in any capacity how (laughs) some of the units that came over, some of the battalions that came over to fight, like they came ready to adapt. Mm -hmm. But that was because of their leadership. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 2010, I had a battle space owner. I, I had been a platoon leader with um, what was then his brigade, or excuse me, his, he was a brigade commander, and, and his brigade sergeant major had been like a mortar platoon leader when I was a lieutenant. And um, he had been, the, anyway, the, the first sergeant had been wounded, and um, I had paid regular, 2010, I paid regular visits from the district center literally driving by myself, me, a dog and an SUV up, you know, up the freaking road. Um, yeah. It, with, with no coalition forces whatsoever, except to track me with a tracking device to talk to them about why they were not able to be more successful in their operations. And when you basically take a, a simple, like I said, fundamentals will win the day every single time. And I would take a red marker and say, this village enclave is where you get this many contacts. And this village enclave is where you get this many contacts. And this one's where you get this many contacts. I said, you're looking in the wrong place. They don't, just like anybody else, they don't shit where they sleep. Mm-hmm. You look at those villages and enclaves in between where all those contact areas are, that's mm-hmm. where your leadership lives. Yes. That's where your logistical areas are. That's where your caches are. That's where they get the amount of um, the greatest amount of support from the auxiliary and the underground. If you can undermine that in the areas that are not contentious, you have the ability to win the battle space over and separate the insurgents from the people. Mm-hmm. Which is that's all counterinsurgency is. It's right. just how do you, what method do you use to separate the people from the insurgents? And the commander's response to me was one I'll never forget. He said, and, and I probably wasn't m- much younger than him, but he said, Son, we're the 82nd Airborne Division. The enemy doesn't tell us where we can go. Oh, and I'm thinking. Didn't anybody ever tell the Wehrmacht that or the SS or mm-hmm. um, <laughs> That's the, the kind enemy of shit absolutely that I has a vote yeah. where you go yeah. and what you do. And if you think that they don't, it's just going to be at the cost of, you know, American blood. Mm-hmm. Toxic arrogance is what that is. Mm-hmm. That is, 
and unfortunately that's the that's the leader oh gosh i'm not going down that rabbit hole <laughs> oh yeah we'll, we'll have to do episode three on nepotism yeah no kidding <laughs> my god that comment oh we're the 82nd airborne don't tell fuck off man the yeah, enemy doesn't tell us where we go son like all right, cool. Well, how about you just walk down that path yeah, that has all those linear but rock formations exactly... on it? Just go ahead and walk down that. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. See what happens. Yeah. It's fine. But no, no, no. You, not the guy with walk the mind taking. You walk right down that way. Yeah, yeah, you said they don't tell you where not to walk, so go ahead and walk. Yeah. Walk okay. right down that road. Walk right on down. Right with that choke point where that little tree is next to that canal wall. Yeah, step in that soft dirt. Tell them who's what. Tell yeah, them who's where that, where that path narrows to about three and a half feet from six. <laughs> Right there is where you want to. That chalk doesn't mean nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just jump with both feet on the soft spot so that you know a you get that double amputation, hundred percent. You know what I'm saying? Or you get some extra extra boost into that field next to you. Yeah, Fucking assholes. If you've ever said that, if you're listening to this and you've ever said we're the 82nd Airborne, fuck you. Like, <laughs> like just fuck you, man. Like, Everyone, everyone that works for you hates you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the crazy thing was the smart ones were like, hey, where do we need to stay away from? Mm-hmm. Or where do we need to go to? And I'm like, okay, that I can work with. Mm-hmm. Or like, hey, we know we have to get to that village. And I don't want to lose eight guys getting there. Right. Instead of not going at all, I don't want to not be, you know, ambitious and I don't want to not, you know, accomplish the mission. What's the best way to go? You know, because there's always like two, there's two levels of commanders and I've seen them both. One is like, oh, well, it's way too risky. We're not even going to do it at all. And then you're mm-hmm. like, well, what the fuck are we even doing here? And then there's the other ones right. that are like, no, nah, I don't care about the risk. I'll, I'll go through 10 guys legs to get this mission accomplished. And it's like, okay, well, fuck you too. There's a third option. Like, how about we do it intelligently? Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a very there's a minority of commanders that opt to think with that level of uh, adapt adaptability 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 and that's a four beer word um, <laughs> and it's unfortunately fewer and fewer as we exit the war on terror they're just leaving because why would they use that why skill set for the army yeah why yeah. But, I mean we were just me and Curtis just a couple of infantry grunts out there humping Gustavs and and uh, M4s around and we figured it out. <laughs> so why the fuck can't a you know higher leadership figure that out too? Well th- this will blow your mind, Rusty. We, we we've obviously talked to people in all, all eras of combat in, in Panjoy, specifically Americans. Yeah. You know, with the exception of our company, almost all of them would go out on platoon size missions. So like a platoon of infantrymen in Panjway with obviously and and with their Afghan um, accompaniments, so you're talking forty to sixty guys trying to walk through Panjway. That that blows my mind. Like we went with like we did squad level operations, and we thought we had too many people. Oh yeah, um, you know, it's just you can't can't move like that in that battle space. It's not built for it. You won't be successful. But by God, doctrine says you take a weapon squad with you every time, so they're going to take a weapon squad with them every time, and it's just, yeah, just no adaptability. Mm. Well, there, there's always something to be said for common sense because it's not so common. And, um, I mean, I know for a fact there was a couple of times when um, the Rangers would go and do operations down Panjaway, and they lost a couple of guys 
Yeah, um, that female mm-hmm. the um, nurse. Yeah, the 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 female lieutenant that they did. She was attached to um, um, to the Ranger Battalion when they were doing a an operation, and I mean they were moving fast to try to get out of the AOR after they did a raid, and um, just too many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too many people. And um, when you, you know, when you, for example, one of the things that we learned from Zach, when Zach was in the unit, of course, we, we all talked regularly, but when he was there with them, you know, they get access to a lot more intelligence and more reliable intelligence than, than, than we do because of their flexibility and their access to national assets. And uh, he was one of the first ones that told me, you know, you got to be so careful anymore because um, the TTP became eventually that they would put rings of security around a specific individual. Yeah. A meeting, you know, mm-hmm. anything like that. So you're looking at, if you start looking in the troops and contact or an IE, you know, if you step on a mine or an IED, you're probably pretty close to somebody who's fairly important. You just got to know how to read the tea leaves to be able to get in there and, and deal with them appropriately. And, um, there was just a lot of times when they, what is that old saying? It's good initiative, bad judgment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there, there's a particular reason that the enemy's either not fighting in a certain area mm-hmm. or that their conduct is a certain way. Right. So you got to be able to express that and just putting a rubber stamp on something and saying, you know, you'd think you're going to be able to control the enemy's movement. Well, the British thought they could do that twice. The, you know, Russians thought, I mean, people have always thought that they could control the people without understanding. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the problem. When when the instinct is to control, you've already lost. You can't control. Mm -hmm. There's no control. You can you can hop along no. for the ride. You can guide it, you know. You can influence, yep. but you can't control. Um, well, we saw the same thing in our chain of commands too, with commanders who were more interested in how was something going to turn out or what was the effect it was going to have, not the effects that you were trying to achieve. Right, mm-hmm. right. And they don't care. No. no, for them it's one rotation to get their marks, and then they're done. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, we saw obviously what happened in August of last year, um, pretty rapid, um, collapse. And we, I think we were all, no one was really surprised of how fast Kandahar collapsed. Um, I think a lot of people were surprised about how fast the rest of the country collapsed, but you know, Kandahar was, it was a foregone conclusion. We knew the moment that CAF was emptied of coalition forces that it would be in Taliban control within weeks. What do you mm-hmm. see, what do you see going forward for Panjway and Kandahar? How do you see like the kind of the cultural dynamics of that area factoring into the future of the country? I'll be very honest with you. I, I don't think that even if you could give them a measure of success, um, I don't think that the government would ever acknowledge number one the mistakes that they made, no. or to take any of the most significant steps to try to fix things. Mm. Um, one of the things that I, I said jokingly probably around 2008 or 2009 was that the best thing that we could do 
as either an ISAF task force or the U.S. is pull back significantly for four or five months, let the enemy expose itself. And like drop the hammer. Yeah. And then come back in and dogpile them. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've said the, the defeat of the insurgency in Afghanistan is very simple. Make them think you're going to leave, pack up, and actually leave. And then when they think you're never going to come back, do like we were trying to do at Jalalabad, you know, in October of 2001, let the enemy reveal themselves and then expeditiously go in there and neutralize the threat. Right. That's very easy. They just wouldn't do it or don't do it. Yeah, I would love to believe that that was the master plan and that we were all being duped and that next week there's going to be JDAMs dropping all over <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> um, I don't I don't really have much hope for that. Don't think that's going to happen, yep. And I mean, the other thing we have to be careful of too is that, I mean, you can look on YouTube and see the amount of equipment and resources that we left behind in five years when a, you know, a commercial airliner comes down and nigeria or the congo they'll know what happened yeah Mm -hmm. because the enemy has seen all the capabilities that we have what we can do and what we can't do and that's why they're masters of it right Mm. but i mean they're going to have to figure out really quick i mean they they've left tens of thousands of people right now that are being summarily executed for their support to the military Mm -hmm. oh yeah Do you, do you see the people of Kandahar or Panjway rising up and opposing the Taliban? Or do you think that it's just so deeply entrenched in there that it's pretty much always going to be a stronghold unless an outside force comes in? I think it'll probably always be a stronghold just because of the simple fact that when you look at um, the total number of forces, when you look at the capability, um, people don't you know, do the same things over and over and over like we do to build up that muscle memory um, and that level of repetition. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, I the past two people just really want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if the Taliban largely just leaves them alone, they're going to just kind of accept the status quo. And the yep. ones that don't will leave for Pakistan or to the north or whatever, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's parts of the country where you can you'll see some uprising and you'll see rebellion and you'll see factions and warlords again in the spring. But I don't think I just don't think Panjoy is ever going to be one of them. No, they really won't. And it's been too strategic, strategically important for the insurgency to lose and for them to be able to regain it. Whomever mm-hmm. ends up becoming the contested leader of, you know, the the. Pakistani and the Afghan insurgency, um, they're going to simply end up having to uh, make the decision as to whether they're they're going to have enough forces to be able to handle or manage uh, the problems that are going to arise. One of the things that we talked about all the time was, <laughs> you know, what what happens when everything goes wrong, mm-hmm. and. Um, in a place like Afghanistan, when you leave and you leave that vacuum 
to be filled by somebody. It's just in their culture to fill it with somebody. Right. Mm. And if we hope he's a monster, but he's our monster, then great. You know, we can work it out with him. But if he's not, then you everything that you sacrificed for to get to that point is lost. What do you think? Do you think in uh, in t- 15 years we'll be able to have a 25-year Medusa reunion on top of Spurwangar? Probably not. Yeah, to be very hold, honest. They're, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hold my breath for it. Yeah, they're probably about three to six years away from another full-on civil war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. Mm. I just feel that way just because understanding the dynamics of how diverse they are, mm-hmm. they're never going to fight under a unified flag. No way. No. I, I think we'll see it as early as the spring. I think once those passes start to thaw out, the NRF will come out of Tajikistan. You'll start to see some of the other groups fighting in the north and in the west. And yeah. the Taliban just isn't going to have the resources or the money to fight attackers. They're not, you know, right. they're good at being the insurgents, but they're not good at fighting the insurgency. So we'll see. What That's happens. correct. Um, well, Rusty, we have been talking for hours and hours, <laughs> and everybody is tired. And the way we close these things out is we always give you the opportunity to kind of say anything that we kind of missed that you wanted to bring up or mention um before we kind of close it out so the floor is yours oh wow um not that it hasn't been the entire time but (laughs) (laughs) you know honestly i i mean i think about like what i've 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 lost so many teammates that i truly love i mean even the guys that are still here that i love more than my own family and my own life um the thing that really motivates me the most is the privilege that I got to walk among giants. I mean, I got to walk halls with heroes, like real, no kidding, you know, Toms and Judes and Zachs. Um, I'm just a, you know, a guy who was blessed enough to inherit a Super Bowl quality team of professionals and experts and madmen that you know the things that they did were epic and the hardest part of my life every day has been able to feel like i have earned the freedom that those guys gave me because i don't see what i did in any capacity as anything other than my job what they expected me to do um, and people have no idea what we sacrificed. I mean, the birthdays, the loss of family members, the births of their children, you know, the holidays, the marriages that are lost, the relationships that are lost because we believe in something bigger than us. And um, at the end of the day, you know, as John Wayne, John Wayne would say, you know, I love America warts and all. It ain't perfect, but by God, it's better than anything else that's out there. And at the end of the day, you can, you will meet somebody every single day that is the country worth fighting for that we fought and believed in. Okay. And I just, I know I'll never get to be a part of that again. And that's probably the 
the thing that I miss most is that camaraderie and that, I don't know, that sense of adventure. I mean, like that tip of the spear, like when you stand on the, you know, at 11,000 feet on the, you know, when you helicopter into the 11,000 feet of the Hindu Kush and you're getting ready to start a three-day trek down the mountain to get at a, you know, an insurgent base or whatever, and you stand there with those eight or nine guys and you're like, we represent the entire United States of America. No pressure. <laughs> hmm. And I miss that. I, yeah. I miss that. I mean, I love my wife. I love my daughter. I, I, I worked with extraordinary men or I worked with ordinary men who did the extraordinary every day hmm. and they never get to do it again and i would give the rest of my life to go on one more patrol All right, well, one more you, raid one me, more anything zach tom we're going <laughs> <laughs> go back relaunching the assault taking spare one guard again <laughs> i mean i look at everything that these guys have become i mean zach goes to the unit We'd lost Riley. Um, we lost Willie Lubers. I look at, I mean, guys like Dave Rush. I mean, Dave Rush is one of, he's in the 160th now. He's one of the best helicopter pilots in the world. Mm. Uh, Dave Smith had to medically retire for his wounds. Um, they, he stepped on an IED in 2008, I think, or 10. Um, you know, somebody like Jude Voss. You run into him in grocery store, you'd never know who he was. Right. Um, I mean, all the guys have taken their lives and their experiences um, and taken everything to the next level. What, whatever that next level is for them. And to me, that's what makes them, makes all of us who we are. Um it's hard because we want to let our experiences define us, but at the end of the day, we don't end up letting that happen. We always have to do something. Leave your leave your five position better than when you got it. Hmm. So, I just hope I can earn the freedom that they've given me. Certainly, yeah. Because I, I, I don't I'd... deserve this, but I that's what that. I tell myself every day. I think, I think you've earned it. From from our point of view, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think it's a good notion to to end on is, you know, we we want to define our lives by our experiences, but that's not necessarily fair. I mean, you know, a lot of those experiences are very short lived, but as long as you can move on to the next phase, leaving the last, leaving your improving your life from one phase to the next, that should be you know that's the that's the way to go about it. I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Rusty. Thank you. Thank you for uh, being super flexible and adaptable. It's a five beer <laughs> word now. Um, you know, there was a lot of logistical challenges and last minute changes and you were super accommodating. We really appreciate that to make this happen uh, kind of at the last minute. So Yeah, man. Really appreciate you taking the time and we appreciate you taking Spurman Gar so that we could sleep in the air conditioning in the schoolhouse. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you can live that life Any, of luxury. Anything for you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps another episode of the Panjoy Podcast. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjoy Podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.